This is your moment. Your moment to move forward and make progress. It's time to see where an education can take you. For over 130 years, Strayer University has been at the forefront of change, offering programs that help students like you get ahead and stay ahead, so you can keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEF. You are listening to Nakedly Examined Music, a podcast about songs and songwriters. My name is Mark Lintonmeyer. For more information about this podcast, please check out nakedlyexaminedmusic.com. My guest for episode 84 is Laura Davis Channon. She played drums in the late 70s for a New York City band called The Student Teachers, and you're right now hearing their song Channel 13 as released on the 2013 compilation Invitation to the Student Teachers, which is their complete works. Laura actually only plays on the first bunch of tracks on there and is no longer a musician. So why am I talking to her? Well, because she wrote a book called The Girl in the Back, A Female Drummer's Life with Bowie, Blondie, and the 70s Rock Scene came out May 2018. Now, she did do some songwriting. She didn't really write for the student teachers. There was group crediting of the songwriting at first, and her book is largely about that experience. So in the course of talking about the book, we're going to listen to a couple more student teacher songs, Looks and Christmas Weather. And through her involvement in the student teachers, she got in a relationship with then-blondie keyboardist Jimmy Destry, and through that ended up with a writing credit for lyrics on a couple of Blondie songs. So we're going to listen to a chunk of Angels on the Balcony, which was released on the 1980 album Auto-American. And we're going to wrap up by listening in full to Slow Motion, as it appeared on the 1979 Blondie album Eat to the Beat. You can also hear Laura as one of the hosts of the Five Fic podcast, another, along with Nakedly Examined Music, member of the Partially Examined Life podcast network. You can find episodes of that at fiveficpodcast.com. If you enjoy what we're doing, please please consider contributing at patreon.com slash nakedlyexaminedmusic. This is fun that we, we get to do this. This is not my normal format, but I like this idea of doing books. Oh, cool, because there are a lot of them coming out and have been out. <laughs> yes, I was actually, had been conversing for several months about having Bruce Thomas from The Attractions on but he's never oh. released a solo album. He's has barely any writing credits, but he's written a lot. <laughs> he has a big fat book and I do have him scheduled now later this month. Oh, that's cool. Thanks to my prep for this. Like, yeah, I could do a book. What's there's nothing wrong with that. Yeah. Musicians write books, some of them. <laughs> and I know that Tina Weymouth and Chris France are both coming out. Well, Chris is coming out with a memoir. I know Debbie Harry is and Chris Stein are. I know all of this is in the works. So You sound like you're promising to get me those people as guests. <laughs> well, you never know. We'll see. Tina and I had an argument <laughs> recently because I had asked her to write a blurb for my book or even to write the foreword. I think I had originally asked her to write the foreword and she came back and she was, it seemed like something that was not very clear, some email that she was like telling me, that I'm putting out this book at my own risk. And I think it's because obviously there's a lot of discussion about Jimmy Destry and the problematic relationship we had in the book. And I think maybe she's just good friends with Jimmy right now. I don't know. It was really a strange interchange. 
There's a lot that is fascinating about this book, and we will play some clips from the student teachers and from the two songs that you co-wrote with Jimmy Dustry for Blondie as we are going. But for the most part, this can be more topic-oriented. I just find stories of young bands, of starting out, what it's like to make music as a teenager. Right. Fascinating. I was thinking about having an extended podcast talking to people that I played with myself in high school, but I haven't talked to for 20 years. I don't know if anybody would care, but... Well, you never know. Yeah, it's fascinating. Yeah, once I got sitting down and writing, the process of doing a memoir is certainly... It seems like all these things came back that you had maybe not thought about as much. I have to really put all the blame on my agent because he's the one that pushed me to write this book. And the reason it happened was that, obviously, unfortunately, Bowie died in January 2016. And when that happened, remember, I wrote that essay that you guys published on PEL called Mortality and the Man Who Fell to Earth. And my agent saw it and he started pushing me to write the book about my friendship with him and about my experience in rock and roll in the late 70s and early 80s. And so, but I didn't want to. And obviously I didn't want to because, as you know, from reading the book, that there's a problematic discussion about my relationship with Jimmy Destry and, and him being abusive. And it was a difficult time as well as an exciting time, but a, a difficult time. So I didn't want to write it. And then he pushed and he pushed and pushed. And okay, okay. So I started writing it and I found it to be very cathartic and helpful. And I obviously at that point had already connected with my old bandmates and the student teachers because we had put out a CD in, I think it was 2014 or 13, something like that. And I, so I'd already been connected with them, but this just brought out more. And so it turned out to be a very wonderful experience. And ironically, the publisher who I'm connected with, Backbeat Books, the editor there, Bernadette Malverco, who's just phenomenal. And she was even more wonderful to be connected with going through this story. It was the good process. <laughs> the selling point of the book is really the scene that you were involved in. I and mean, there's lots of, nobody's going to be that interested in what it was like for people in the northern suburbs of Chicago who never went out and saw a gig even really. You know, you tell the story as the transition from a fan, and in particular, you know, that you're in New York City, you do not have good parental supervision, and this leads to you going out and as a 16-year-old, like going to CBGBs all the time, going to these clubs where these seminal bands are playing and like, this is just one of the most, you know, at least the top four famous scenes in the history of rock and roll. Yeah, absolutely. Thank God for my parents <laughs> who weren't there. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, actually it's interesting you say that because since the book came out, a lot of people from that time have contacted me and stuff. One of them was recently Nick Petty, who was the lead singer for a band called The Blessed, who I discussed in the book. And they were the same as me, 16, 17 years old. I mean, we were all so young. It's frightening when you think about it. He was saying, wow. He was said when he was reading the book, he was just starting to cry because he remembers, you know, that our parents weren't there. And then, but I don't know where we got the gumption, where we had the balls to go into the scene and do what we did. But it was just amazing that we had that opportunity. We didn't even realize it, obviously. Well, I would think some of the lessons in terms of how to get involved in music, not because you've been taking drum lessons since you were five, like you didn't even know how to play at all. It was like, we're going to form a band, which instrument should I play? Like, which is not an unheard of story. <laughs> I really feel like that was a key of, of that time, a very strong theme. I mean, I don't know how many of the guys in the Blessed knew how to play their instruments either. But yeah, that was a very big thing that people just like, okay, we can do this. 
I mean, we want to do this. We want to be a part of this. Yeah, let's do this. It's not like when I was five years old thinking, oh, I want to grow up and be a drummer. You know, I wasn't like that. And I'll tell you, and you know, because if you don't have a natural, an aspect of being able to play an instrument and to play it well, that is part of just a natural ability. And it's very true with the drums. You have to have a natural sense of rhythm. There are plenty of people that don't. And I was just lucky that I had that at that time. It seemed before you even started the band, you were roadieing, right? Before you even... Yes. Just to get out there. And I think this would be applicable even now in any scene. If you're just... Certainly, I know very key in establishing relationships is actually go to the shows, which is something that I've never actually... (laughs) I'm not a bar person, so this was like one of my crippling things throughout my early career. But not only go out to the shows, but just help them carry equipment, hang around and talk to them. And then the key thing was you actually started then filming and doing video editing, you know, so actually providing a service for these people to show that you appreciate your work, which just now you're in their circle. A lot of that, well, not the roading. The roading part was definitely me and, and Lori, who was the bass player in my band, that we just got involved with that. And I think that was also engineered by the fact that we really appreciated the erasers who we roadied for were mostly a female band, which was unusual. And Jane Fire, who was the drummer, was, I was not a drummer at that point. She was one of the first, even before me, female drummers on the scene. And so we loved working for them because they were girls and we were with them. There was one, Richie Lore was also a guitar player in that band, but they're mostly women. And so that was really important to us. But then the filming of the mumps, as I say, and I went into is that video was like, what the hell is this in the late seventies? I mean, that was really a new, what is this? And that people could actually pick up a camera and do their own thing, film, whatever, whether it's at a band or down the street or something like that. I mean, these days we just put our phones up. I mean, there's film, their entire movies now made just on cell phones. And so it's amazing the difference. But in those days, it was really revolutionary. And it was really through Bill Arning, who was the keyboard player of my band and is now the director of the Houston Museum of Arts. Anyway, he's the one that really initiated, like, let's do something for the mumps because it was like such a big deal to us to be a part of them. It was fun. Yeah, it's very satisfying now reading a book like this where you're name dropping so much to have, you know, Spotify or something like that right there, YouTube, that you can actually see what these people sound like for the most part. There were some, like you talked about the no a lot, the ex blondie bass player that I could not find anything. I, you know, I don't. Like Gary Valentine? Yeah. I could find at least a couple songs. One of the reasons I started this podcast is to explore, you know, why do people make music the way that they do, how they do, or in your case, stop making music. So this is kind of one of the most interesting things. Of course, there's medical reasons why you got out of it completely, but there are lots of opportunities. Well, let me just ask you. I mean, it didn't sound like you had been, for instance, one of my ex-bass players from Austin, he came down with ALS shortly after he left. And he's actually since passed away, but for years, he was sort of losing more and more function, but he was increasingly, because he couldn't have a job anymore, doing music electronically and doing that with people over the internet. He couldn't play bass anymore, but he even got to the point where he was using a fake electronic voice talker and he used that to be the vocal of the song. And that was sort of the shtick and, you know, was very active in pushing his story out there. And so this is somebody that certainly a physical disability is not sufficient to get one off of music, but you're, why aren't you doing any of this anymore? 
the thing is that, as I say in the book, that was kind of one of the most wonderful gifts that Bowie gave me in knowing him and learning from him and talking with him was that he gave me kind of, I mean, when you're 18 and David Bowie says to you, you know, you don't have to be in rock and roll if you don't want to. It's okay to do what you want to do. It doesn't have to be rock and roll. Is amazing to hear from this icon. And so the thing is that, yeah, in my heart, and that kind of is a theme that's brought up throughout the book, is there's this tension between academics and rock and roll in that it's manifested through my English teacher, Mr. Schwartz, at high school. That tension was always there. My desire to pursue college and studies versus rock and roll. For a teenager with hormones and everything that's going on in your life, to be involved in the music scene is a very big pull, and it pulls you away. I mean, for a lot of people, they just leave school and go into music or go into rock and roll or go into some debauched world who knows what can happen. So that was a tension that was throughout the book. And the thing that happens with Bowie toward the end is that he kind of gave me the permission to make the choice that I really in my heart wanted to make, which was I wanted to go to college. And, you know, getting MS, it's just life, right? You know, I have a very relaxed view about that whole thing. And even though I was diagnosed at that point, and I was told to rest, 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 physically, it didn't really significantly manifest for many, many, many years. And so theoretically, I probably could have gone back to the drumming and played for a number of years, but that's not where my heart was. My heart was really wanted to be in college and in academics. And so I think that that was a unique and surprising and wonderful gift that Bowie gave me. Now, you think, okay, well, what you couldn't make that decision yourself. You needed David Bowie to tell you that. It's not that I couldn't, but I was young. And when you're that young, you're confused. And plus there were drugs and everything. I guess it's also just that being in rock and roll for you was being part of a scene, which of course is not just one scene. It wasn't always just going out to clubs. You're also, through your relationship with Jimmy, able to see if you actually make it, what that's like, what it's like to be super famous, what it's like to be traveling all the time and living in hotels, which the student teachers, even though they're playing a lot of really good gigs in New York City, and on the East Coast, but not beyond that. Okay, so you were doing some touring and yeah, being yeah. worn down in that way by your own work, as well as witnessing what they were doing. And it seems like you're equating, when it comes down to it, like being in rock and roll is also being in a world of drugs, and specifically being in this abusive because of drugs relationship, at least that's the way it's presented, that it's not that he was natively a wife beater, but that it's somebody that cocaine makes you do horrible things. And there you go. I'm not saying that cocaine absolutely makes you do horrible things. It can ruin your life and often does. But yes, in that instance, I definitely saw the drugs eating away at his brain and his ability to be decent and kind and humane. But that's a stress, and that's a stress in the rock and roll world. And yeah, it's something you see when you get up to those upper echelons and you see what's going on. And I think I discussed this in the chapter where I'm in the hospital, is that you get to that point and, you know, it's just money and these very magnificent apartments and travel. And the thing about the money is you never know where it came from. It's just always there. I mean, it's just everything you wanted. It's living in a bubble. Jimmy actually wrote that song, 1159 which is about that. It's always 11.59 and for you in that world. And it's real. I'm not trying to play this up. It's real that you don't really have a sense of reality. In fact, when I was in the hospital and I talk about this, I remember when I was first diagnosed, 
I remember thinking that a little bit like, what's the big deal? When you're up in that sort of upper echelon, you don't get hurt. Disease doesn't happen. These normal processes of life, of loss and gain, just doesn't happen. It's a frightening way to be. And I, in many ways, one of the things I learned coming out of that world is a lot of empathy for the people that have to live in it. Because when you get really famous, I even think I discussed it a little bit in terms of David walking up down the street with him. And that one last scene when I last saw him, I was like freaking out. I didn't want anybody to see him. And he was like just wanting to get to a cab and stuff. But that's another thing is that he was so famous. He had to hide in cabs. He had to sneak around places. And I mean, you can't just walk on the street like a normal human being. I mean, you lose a very serious, important part of normalcy in life. And what I learned is a real value for that. Yeah, certainly there's several things being mixed together here. I mean, one is just feeling indestructible, like most young people, no matter what their circumstance, (laughs) kind of feel like that. So being thrown for a loop when hit by a serious illness at age 18, like, yeah, of course (laughs) you would feel that. Whatever, (laughs) right? But the idea of I'm never going to do any music in any form again in any way because If I got to the point of David Bowie, I would be miserable and I wouldn't be able to walk on the street. (laughs) No, my point is that there is a value to have that sense of the real world. And people who end up going into that very highfalutin, rich, famous area that happens when you get that successful and that famous have to work to maintain that sense of what is real. And so there are people that don't do it and they fall victim to the drugs and they fall victim to that whole fantasy. But then there are people, and I think Bowie worked very hard to do this, that tried to maintain normalcy in their existence. What I was saying is that that exists and that what I learned, and I think I brought this up sort of at my last concert that I went to, and I think this is also interesting, this is a separate sort of issue, was, was Alice Cooper at the Savoy here in New York. And I remember I say in that paragraph when I'm at his concert, I said, I I came to this realization, and it's true that I was looking around, and I was thinking, Jesus, this is not real. This is just surreal, and I don't want this anymore. And it's one thing to go to a concert and experience that surrealness and then leave and go home and go back to your job and, you know, diaper the baby and whatever it is you have to do. But that unreality, that surrealness just would follow me home because I was living in it. And I was like, I don't want this anymore. This is not real. And that was a real wonderful lesson to learn. Now, again, playing music, I mean, we're talking about playing music versus living in this world. It is two different things. And you're saying, well, how could you not play music anymore? Well, it kind of wasn't the point from the beginning, the music for me. Before even the roadie stuff, you're in Berlin and you're using this music as a lifeline that certainly a lot of young people, even if they have no ambition to play music, like still it's really important to them at that age. And just walking around listening to these same albums over and over again, maybe people don't do that now. I can't get my kids to listen to a whole album in a row ever, <laughs> pretty much. But I know the feeling of, of wearing a cassette down to uh, <laughs> you have to yeah, right. replace it because you've, you've spun it too much. You know, I guess that's also something maybe that can be grown out of. It has a relation to the attitude of a musician where they're just like, I just have to make music. That's just part of my life. That's what I do. Whether it's writing lyrics or playing an instrument or a number of people I've interviewed that I think like you in this situation were kind of in the right 
circumstances with the right other people so that it brought out these talents that maybe they wouldn't have just on their own figured out. It's not like you were going to go buy a four track or whatever the equivalent was then and record a bunch of your songs and be like a one woman band. Cause that's just not exactly. the way that you were approaching it, you know, as the auteur <laughs> in that way, but you're a good writer. And so like, Hey, sit with me around a kitchen table. Let's write lyrics. Wow. And these can end up on an album. That's pretty cool. <laughs> yeah, no, it's definitely fun, but it was definitely being in the right place at the right time in a way, because all of us had said, wouldn't it be cool if you know we had a female drummer? That would be cool. It was a lot of fun. And it, it was kind of like a communal thing. Like, let's just have a blast. Let's have fun. It wasn't like, let's write very powerful music. It wasn't, you know, even though Philip, who was the guitar player, and he wrote the song Looks, which I believe is our best song, and he's very talented and he still performs and writes and he's a very talented songwriter and he had been playing guitar for a while and Bill was also had studied piano for a long time. Lori and I came to our instruments at the time. I studied drums for a couple of months and she studied bass with my drum teacher's bass player because he had a band too. But it happened to work out. There was no, as we've mentioned, I did not grow up hoping to be a musician. I wanted to be a writer. That's what I always wanted to be. Of course, I took a lot of side roads to get there. But Well, you mentioned the song Looks, so let's stop and hear that. Again, this is The Student Teachers. Just what I was looking for 
Yeah, and it certainly wasn't mean to imply that, you know, it's just luck that you got to do it. Because, like, you put yourself out in that situation. I mean, it was very aggressively, like, you wanting to be part of that scene. Again, I will blame someone else. (laughs) And that would be Bill Arning because he really pulled me into it. He was very passionate about the mumps and about the scene at the time. He was very involved in the scene while I was in Berlin. He was my best friend from high school. We went to the same high school, obviously, as I discussed. And then when I got back from Berlin and connected with Bill... Then he pulled me in, and yeah, I agree. It was very aggressive, but I believe most of that came from Bill. I mean, I was just like, take me along. (laughs) I'm here with you. You're very self-deprecating in the book about, as you said, you you had a good sense of time, picked up what you needed to pretty fast. Of course, you're playing live a lot, so... If you're okay in the first place, you're going to get good. And, you know, they're reasonable fills and things, but you talk about in the book how, you know, really I was just a metronome. That David Bowie came and was producing a song and, you know, telling the bass player to do this little different over there. Hey, why don't you change the keyboard? And never say anything to you at all because, really, what's there to fix about a metronome? Which, <laughs> exactly. There's so many. I'm kind of a connoisseur of drum styles. Like, I almost couldn't disagree more <laughs> with that attitude that, yes, being super tight is, of course, important and something that makes a band. But there's so many drummers that, like, I know their style exactly. Or even drummers that are not really that great at keeping exact time, <laughs> but they still, just in their energy, just have something that is just really special and just makes the, I mean, you do emphasize the role of the drums in the band, how you were setting the scene. Like if you didn't set it up right, the whole thing was going to crash. And when you did start at your last show or near last show where you were having a medical episode and kind of couldn't move your muscles very well and was just slowing everything down, like how that, at least from your point of view, really crashed the gig. Yeah, it did. I didn't know what the hell was happening, obviously. That was a little shocking to learn when I first started studying that their drums are really critical. I mean, they're like the bass. I mean, I don't even know the <laughs> bass player, but they're the, you know what I mean. They are the baseline of what's happening, and you have to keep it together. And if you don't, fucking everything falls apart. And that's a real problem. That was shocking to me at that age. What was I, eight, 17 or 16 or something when I was taking those lessons? I was like, what? What? It is quite intense. There is a quote in the book, in a footnote by this man, Peter Crowley. He was the manager of Max's Kansas City. He said that he felt I was really good and that he thought it was a shame that I didn't continue playing, that he felt that I was just like a few minutes away from being as good as Chris France from Talking Heads, which I always, I didn't know. I had never been told that until, I guess, when I was writing the book, perhaps, when somebody told me that. I'm really touched by that. I do know that I had, I could keep a very solid beat, I could keep it tight, and I could keep it for an extended period of time. I don't recall being very, you know, these big drummers that have, and actually my drum teacher was like that, you know, all over the place, and I don't, I was not like that at all. But then it's not like our songs demanded that. We had pretty simple songs. With a big, first it was just keyboard and one guitar, but you had a second guitar after a while to kind of hold the rhythm down better and bass and a freestanding singer. I think they're something that feels very much like a community about the arrangements in terms of it wouldn't make sense for the different instrumentalists to be kind of fighting each other. We're just all playing not super minimally. It's not Devo. There's a certain looseness to it that makes it feel more familial, in fact. Yeah, that's one way of looking at it. Maybe that's just a matter of being slightly underproduced in terms of making sure the guitar and the keyboard have the tones that will mesh exactly. You got to get somebody who's really sonically experienced to get in there and mess with that if you're going to. Yeah, definitely. I agree. 
when I started playing in high school, it was not because I had been at clubs. I mean, we were in the suburbs, couldn't drive for most of the time, definitely didn't drink, like wouldn't have been able to get into clubs, wouldn't have known even where to go. So it was learning stuff off of records. And so I think I was in a few bands before I kind of realized the centrality of the drums, because I really wasn't thinking in rock and roll terms. Most of my playing had been in orchestras where there's percussion, but it's there to like add a texture. And so that's how the drums that I liked, like Stuart Copeland from the police or something like that, he was not super tight, <laughs> but he was really freaking interesting. And a lot of it was in the hi-hat work and things like that. So I just saw it as like the sugar, whereas maybe it's the rhythm guitar and the bass, but even the bass, since that was my primary instrument. And I like Paul McCartney and like these kind of melodic bass lines. So it's, I guess it's just the guitar chords or the things that hold down everything. And then everything else could be added after that, which is very different. I think there's such an advantage to the fact that before you even started making music, this is just talking economically. You saw what the product and who the audience <laughs> was. I know you weren't thinking in these terms. <laughs> you were, Not at all. But I, I know where you're going, but no, I wasn't thinking that way. Yes, yes. That, I mean, <laughs> I, you know, I had, when I started writing songs, I like to listen to it back. I can play it on my cassette for my parents or whoever, and they seem to like it. Embarrassingly, I even made, you know, after I wrote my first few songs, I think this is like after sophomore year. So around, around the kind of time you're talking about the start of the book where I was like, you know, I don't think I need to get a job this summer. I could probably just try to sell my songs or like, I would have no idea and had no idea and obviously never and still really haven't ever <laughs> sold songs. Certainly could not make a living even to the equivalent of, you know, a $5 an hour job. <laughs> Doing that. <laughs> I mean, I think the amount of royalties that we ended up making, I mean, I think was the most was about five, six thousand dollars. And it went to Philip for that song Looks, which has been the most popular and has been is covered a lot. But I think personally, I got about twenty five dollars <laughs> <laughs> in the course of the songs that we ended up getting published. But you did deliver the product to the audience that was intended. Like you knew what venue you were going to be playing at. <laughs> You knew what kind of music was doing that. Not that you were, again, like self-consciously, like, how can we be more like what we're hearing? But that's what infested you. And so you were able to reflect that very efficiently. <laughs> right. There was a quality at the time and energy in the downtown scene and CBGBs and Max's in this whole area, which I live not far from here. <laughs> and everybody was geared toward that. And it was really remarkable to be around. But I wasn't aware of that at the time. I'm aware of it now, obviously, hindsight. But uh, yeah, it was a unique experience, unique time, definitely. It clarified this relationship between punk and post-punk. So most of the music that I grew up in the early 80s really liking was considered post-punk. The Cars, the Talking Heads. I actually think of them more as post-prog. In other words, like Roxy music was very much informed by the fact that there was Emerson, Lake, and Palmer and all this weird orchestrated stuff and like, we're not going to do that. We're still going to do dance music. We're going to do stuff that people actually like, but it's informed by this artsy sense. Whereas punk, I don't think of that at all. Punk is like the guys who have just out there <laughs> sawing away playing their two chord things. That's me when you have the Sex Pistols and you have the Clash and you have the Ramones and you have, I mean, these people were getting out there and I mean, I think at the beginning of the book, I quote Patti Smith, right, who says punk rock is freedom to be who you are and freedom to. And that's what it was. It was a sense of freedom. It's like it was like, fuck you. I'm getting out here and I'm going to do what I want to do. That's what it was. And that's a very distinct difference from what we had prior to the late 70s, which we had the, all these big stadium acts, Iron Maiden and Jethro Tull, 
all of these big bands, these stadium acts. And people were like, wait a minute, I don't want to do that. I want this to be intimate and I'm coming out there and I'm doing this. And I think that that was key and very important time, you know, and that's how punk came about. I want to say that it started with Sex Pistols, but I think I've talked to a couple of friends of mine. My friend Paul, who is the drummer of the Mumps and is the editor of the book, he said it really didn't start with. I mean, the Sex Pistols were sort of the biggest ones. that They brought it all the attention, but it was really started with CBGBs, and I think it was before the Sex Pistols came to. So the next person I'm interviewing is the drummer who played with The Damned, which I was reading about them and, oh, and didn't realize yeah. that they actually you know, were with that first wave of punk and that they beat the Sex Pistols to get the first punk album out, you know, at least of the Brit punks invading. Of course, we got the Stooges back in the early 70s that are already really have the formula there. So it's not that it's something. Well, yeah, that's true. That's true. But again, I mean, you could say that they were not like the greatest musicians in the world and that this doesn't really matter. Mm -hmm. That's kind of the whole point of punk is that the expression, the anger, the movement, it was a revolution and it happened to be coming through music. That was kind of their mode. That was the way they were engineering this. But it was not musically great, however you wanted to find that. It's not the point. And I think that that really fed us when I'm saying, okay, let me play the drums. Because the point is not whether I can play the drums. Luckily, I was able to. But I want to play the drums. Let's play the drum. I'll be the drummer. Let's get on stage and let's do it ourselves. I talked to one of the guys from Mekons. They also started as, you know, it's a bunch of people in art school, just like, hey, let's be a band. <laughs> Everybody pick an instrument. And that started their thing like that. And that eventually, though, evolved through some just firing members and bringing in others, but also just people getting better and better to becoming like a super solid rock band, just a matter of keeping at it. That's like talking hats. They were art students. And they were like, yeah, let's do this. Let's hit a few of the milestones in the book during my opening. I'll, I'm going to put some of Channel 13, the first single. And so you talk about recording that and Christmas weather. You use Christmas weather in the book to sort of talk about kind of the recklessness of what it was to be, you know, a bunch of, I want to say, unsupervised teens. You had some older people who were pretty instrumental in managing you. And I guess that's another thing to emphasize of how strange and fortunate that is that you were in an environment that you kind of attracted Jody and Antoine, right? They were only a little bit older. Uh huh. Not a lot. <laughs> only a couple of years. But it's at that time when you're 16 and 17, a 21 year old is like, sure. Oh. But yeah, it, it was old enough that Jody was, I mean, she's only like maybe two years older, but she just took care of us and completely. And, and she ended up marrying Joe, who was the rhythm guitar player that came in later. And they're still married. We were lucky to have them. Christmas weather came out of, that's really our first song and we're kind of known for that. It came out of, I discussed this in the book, that sort of car crash that we had one night after watching that movie about Jan and Dean. And we got into a bit of a car crash on our way to driving over to Max's. It was David's mother's car. Oh, gosh, I hope they don't get him in trouble now. <laughs> it was David's mother's car, and he, it got all crashed up. And he and Philip ended up writing uh, Christmas Weather um, from that experience. And that sort of became our first big song that we were known for. And I think uh, and it was Christmas Weather and Channel 13 are on the uh, first single. When I think about the song that really is us, I think of Christmas Weather, because it really came out of an experience of us all in the same car, you know, like buddies hanging out and getting into a, a car accident. Sort of like Jan and Dean, except theirs didn't end as nicely. <laughs> I 
when you live in New York and you live in LA or you live in London, you're bound to meet people because everybody is drawn to those communities, people who are in the arts and music and finance, academia, whatever. I happen to have been staying in an apartment that was owned by Joe Butler from the band Love and Spoonful. That's another, like these weird little things that happen. I happen to be babysitting his kid, you know, at the time. You just happen to have these connections. So you got the transition from writing that song and you're getting some good opening slots. Then you have Jimmy Destry from Blondie shows up to one of your gigs and ends up wanting to produce this single. And you describe in the book how it was laying out cocaine on the snare drum, like right before you're going to do the take and things like that. How did that work technically in terms of the production aspect? So one of the nice things in your book is that you give your other band members some space to actually write, you know, a paragraph here and there or do footnotes to kind of correct things that you said. And one of them made the comment that, oh yeah, Jimmy just wanted to kind of control us. We are young people. But how did that manifest in terms of the actual recording of these, the first single or both singles he was involved in, both recordings? Everything we did, he produced everything. I do think that he was involved in restructuring songs and rewriting them to an extent. I wasn't involved in the writing of the songs. It was more Philip and Bill and David. So I do know that that is something that he was involved, that Jimmy sort of pushed himself into. Because, you know, it's one thing to write a song and it sounds great, but then when you get a producer comes in and they're going to say, well, the chorus should probably go here and maybe you should do this. And it's, that's what he was doing to make it sound more commercial, more sellable. I don't know, because I wasn't involved in that process as closely as other people in the band were. So they have a stronger sense of how sort of maybe intrusive he might have been. I mean, not that playing the drums is a just thing. That's a critical thing. But I'm just saying for me, they're more sensitive to and aware of his being more intrusive. I know that in the song Looks, there is some debate about whether... It was Jimmy's idea for the background vocals or it was our idea for the background vocals. So I know that that was, became a thing, too. Again, he was, what, 24, 25, and we are 16, 17, 18. And then he's like this big rising rock star, and he's like, okay, I want to do this. I want to come in here and make this single and blah, blah, blah. I mean, you know, it's kind of hard to – and you're in high school – and you got to go and spend all night at this recording studio to make this record. You get bowled over by the whole thing, you know, thinking about maintaining the critical parts of your song kind of gets lost in all that. And so it was easier for him to sort of manipulate the song to the way he felt it should be Christmas Weather Channel 13. I'm sure that the guys in my band are going to say, no, Laura. But I'm just saying that I know at that time, if I look at the whole, you know, organically at the whole experience of that time, that it is not surprising that Jimmy was able to manipulate quite a bit in terms of the songs that we did and how they were produced. And I think there are bad feelings about that. By the time you get to recording the second single, where you're recording uh, Looks and What I Can't Feel, that you were happy that they actually had background vocals, you had something else to do. It was fun. I hadn't really sung on any of the other recordings, so that, yeah, that was a nice break, instead of just sitting in the waiting room waiting to come and play my part. <laughs> Maybe that's just the difference between studio work and live work, that at least live, everybody's there, everybody's doing something. You, you feel like you're part of it at all times, 
And with the studio, when you're layering things like, okay, well, there's my part. Why don't I just leave? Exactly. But you really can't leave because then if something comes up and you have to change, fix something or redo it. So you really can't leave. That's why people end up in the studio for like 24, 48 hours straight, more, longer. My memory is it wasn't a most fun experience. But then I write about that too, that not only living in a recording studio, which is what happens when you're up there making albums and stuff like that, it's just an exhausting, really totally unpleasant experience to live in these studios that have no windows and no sense of reality again, back to that bubble. But they need to be that enclosed for in terms of the sound. You have to be able to maintain that kind of enclosure. And so they have to do that. There's no windows and all of the walls are padded. It's just an awful experience. I mean, in terms of that, I'm not saying in terms of making music is awful. I'm just saying the recording studio is, is just really an unpleasant experience. And I write about that a lot because I had to get, spend a lot of time in recording studios with Blondie when they were recording Eat to the Beat, Auto American. Also, when David Bowie was recording um, his Super Creeps album, Jimmy was working on it with him. So I was up there, that up at Power Station here in the city. So it was the same idea. It's a quality of existence that is really unpleasant. Well, yeah, you refer when you're talking about being around the Blondie albums that Jimmy and the others, they weren't noticing it necessarily. They're consumed by their creative activity, and it was largely because you were excluded from that, it seemed like. Well, yeah, because I was a girlfriend. Yeah. So you got two writing credits on Blondie albums for contributing lyrics. Slow Motion and Angels on the Balcony. So slow motion was first, the first of the two, right? Yeah, that's the most important one because that cites, if you look at the lyrics, and I didn't think of this, I have to give my agent the credit. One of the lines is about the girl in the back. And when we were talking, I guess we were sort of bouncing around ideas for the name of this book. And I came up with, I think the horrible name I came up with was something like, it's not the way you think it is or something like that. And he's like, no, let's go with the girl in the back from slow motion. And I was like, oh, yeah, I forgot about that. And so, yeah, that is from there. And we also discuss The Quake in slow motion. We talk about the song The Quake, and that's a song that the student teachers did called The Quake, which is about our high school, Friends Seminary, which is a Quaker high school. Angels on the Balcony was kind of weird, and I think I talk about that too, writing that when we were living in L.A., when they were recording it to the beat. It was kind of like just bouncing back words between each other. And the difference between writing slow motion together and writing angels on the balcony together. It was really night and day. Slow motion, it was we were still in love, maybe. We were able to communicate more intensely, and we were enjoying working together. And obviously, he had been working with the student teachers, and he knew our songs, and I was throwing out these lyrics from the songs of the student teachers. So we were enjoying that experience more. Angels on the balcony, even though it's a lovely song, was more of bouncing back ideas but I don't think we were as much in love at that point. And we weren't communicating as intensely or as perfectly as we could have been to write a good song. But lyrics came out and they were okay. But I don't remember feeling very attached to it or feeling like it was really that important. I was just throwing out words. After glow in a distant row, the door is open and the the children come in here and they dare the ghost Like a fire burning in a stone 
It was different with slow motion. I felt like that was more of a collaborative effort that mattered. Whereas Angels on the Balcony was just sort of, what about this? You know, and, and throwing out a line, throwing out a line. I think we'll wrap up by playing slow motion in full. Before we get to that, any major themes or topics of discussion that we have not hit yet, as far as you're concerned? Like I mentioned, the last concert I went to was at Alice Cooper. And I'm writing a book now with Michael Lago, the man who first signed Metallica. And he also brought Nina Simone back into the world she had recorded for a long time. I'm thinking about her now because I'm writing that chapter right now. And a lot of other people, Cindy Lauper, a lot of other people. Michael Lago actually was with us at the Student Teachers back in the late 70s. His best friend was Lori, who was my, my, the bass player in the band. And he and I grew up together. We knew each other. But he went off to become a record executive for Electra Records. And I went to college. <laughs> and so, strange coincidence, we come back together. And I've written this book. And, you know, I'm working on co-writing this book, his memoir. The reason I'm saying all this, kind of going off topic, is that the first concert that Michael went to was Alice Cooper. And I always found that amazing. His first concert with Alice Cooper, my last concert was Alice Cooper. So at some point, I've got to connect with Alice Cooper. <laughs> That's one thing about that. I went out to see the David Bowie Is show. I don't know if it has been out around you guys. I know that it was in L.A. and in London and stuff like that. But I was at the Brooklyn Museum, and I went out there two weeks ago to see it. And I have to say, it was the most amazing experience I've had in a long, long time. I'm so blessed. I feel so blessed to have been able to know this man and been touched by him. And that's an important point that I want to get out there, that he was a remarkable, very a real humanist and just a remarkable person. There's one more topic I had on my list that we had not brought up. So I feel like you've gotten to have something like the band experience again through the magic of podcasting. That I, the dynamics involved with the people is so much like a band. <laughs> it is. It is. If the politics, yes. I, yeah, the politics, definitely. The only difference is we're older. <laughs> so I, that's a different thing. I mean, when you're young and, and I don't know, maybe you're put up with a lot more when you're younger. <laughs> I don't know. But yeah, you're right. There is a, a true issue with the politics of because you're dealing with four or five people and they're all working on the same thing. And they all have their own perspective and their own way that they want to approach it or want to do it. And so, yeah, it definitely brings up a lot of stuff, as you know. I feel like I was more inflexible when I was younger. <laughs> now that I have Maybe. greater interpersonal skills and can just, you know, things that would have just fired somebody over or just not talked about it. Like we can talk rationally and critique each other and it's fine. And there's no ego things that grip people in their twenties of, <laughs> and especially in music when, you know, as we are getting into our mid to later twenties, like the time is running out where I might make it in music and the ego issues that go with that. It's just so nice in anything in doing music or doing podcasting now to be past that. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't disagree with you, except the one thing that I can say about when you're that young, like when I was that young, is none of us cared enough. You know, we're just like, ah, whatever. But now I've found, particularly in the podcast political thing, is there's still ego and egos can get ruffled, but not as much. I see your point, though. I, see your I point. do think maybe, though, it was because, and again, I'm really glad to get this perspective that in that particular band, you felt like a full participant. It was fun. It was life consuming, but it wasn't like 
this is my baby that I am creating and that, or, you know, that it didn't seem like it have from your perspective, since you weren't the songwriter or what, you know, do you feel like some of the other people in the band, the guys who were writing the songs had more of that, no, you have to do it this way. And this is the way, you know, or, it is my vision that must be realized. No. I very much had that because <laughs> again, I started in orchestras where people write a whole freaking score and then they hand it out to you and you play it. And so that's kind of how, you know, the first time I'm working with a lead guitarist, right. I'm trying to tell them what to do. I play guitar better than you, says the other person. <laughs> so like exactly. that it was took a couple, you know, a few years to just like lay off and let people do their thing and relax more. And <laughs> yeah, I, I don't, I think one of the main reasons why that wasn't an issue with us was that not only were we very young and we were so called having fun, but there was a lot of drugs. Uh-huh. People were not, you know, and so that I think that really affected how people dealt with each other and people were drinking and, a lot. And I know that Philip has been in AA for a long time. And he, you know, I just, that was another big thing. You know, the drugs and the alcohol really colored a lot. Thankfully, we all got out of it, but there were certainly people we knew that didn't make it, you know, that OD'd and stuff like that. So. Well, and you characterize it in the book as kind of the price of admission to the scene, that you couldn't be doing what you were doing day after day and going to those clubs. Like when I would go to clubs, when I came to Madison in 2000 for the first time, like I want to spend more time in the clubs than I usually would, even though I have a little kid at the time. So I'm going out to gigs, but I'm like bringing a book, (laughs) bringing my earplugs, kind of sitting in the corner, like, you know, doing what I have to do, but not moshing and like doing what you would do to really be part of the scene. (laughs) Well, how old were you? Well, at that point, I was late twenties, but that's kind of sort of how I always was. <laughs> like I just I, well, then yeah, exactly. <laughs> that's the struggle I had, and it comes out in the book that you know I wanted to be writing this and reading and at class. I did not get as involved in the drugs as other people did, but many people did. It got in the way of a lot of things. You know, I don't know how drugs being the price of admission, how uniform that is, but I suspect it's more uniform then I would allow myself to admit that, that I just missed out on a lot of stuff when I was 20 trying to shop my band around. We just didn't have as many fellow bands that we would hang out with. You know, they're, they're just other college student, snooty, basically anti-drug people that we'd also associate with rather than really feeling the love, feeling love with everyone in the scene. I mean, it's huge. And I, again, I would hope it's not as bad now mm-hmm. because of our awareness and everything, but I can't say that that's the case. And I'm thinking only now, cause I'm writing this chapter on Nina Simone for the, this book I'm working on the drinking and the drugs that she was doing in 1993. She must have been in her fifties or something. I'm shocked, but that just seems to be the way it was. I hope it's not the way it still is, but I, I'd be surprised if it isn't. It just seems to be a huge part of it. I'm surprised that Keith Richards, as he probably has died a few times <laughs> and come back. But And he also, I don't know if you know, but he's a real bookworm. Well, that's a good note to stop on. I've never seen a problem, which is probably because I was not actually successful in meddling with the scene in balancing academics and music. They just seem like two different kinds of creative work different parts of your brain but yeah it's like they're two different universes it's interesting because you seem to be discussing the same sort of you know balancing of academics and music that i was through this book you were seeing them as fundamentally just because that's the way they were showing up that either i'm in this world of the drugs and the staying out all night or i'm able to study 
Whereas like, I basically do both. And that, in fact, that was the thing, like for months before I actually went to college, I was like planning how as soon as I get to college, I'm going to get the best band because there's going to be so much of a bigger pool of musicians. And there was, you know, it really. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So let's leave with slow motion. Thanks so much for doing this. Thank you. Thanks very much to Laura. That was fun to stop having to pay so close attention to musical arrangements and writing techniques and just talk more generally about 
making music as a young person and about this New York City scene. Now, I actually did this interview right before the one with Rat Scabies, as you heard me anticipating that interview. So listen to the previous episode, 83, with Rat Scabies for another view of the punk scene and what it's like to be a drummer in a punk band. I also anticipated on there my interview with Bruce Thomas of The Attractions, which actually has not yet happened. It got postponed. I'm still planning to do it, but I'm not sure exactly when. It will not be for several episodes after this. The next release will be with an amazing guitarist, John Etheridge. He plays right now with the classic prog band Soft Machine. He's also done a lot of solo albums and duet albums, like with the guitarist John Williams, with Andy Summers from The Police. One of the songs we're going to play is from a jazz album with a singer. So please come back for that. You can get all these at nakedlyexaminedmusic.com. And I again want to encourage you to go to patreon.com slash nakedlyexaminedmusic and sign up for a contribution to support what is going on here. I also want to plug, while you're feeling generous, another Patreon page, patreon.com slash marklint, which is to support the engineering costs for my album, which is in progress right now. Again, that's patreon.com slash marklint. You can hear lots and lots of my music at marklint.com so you can see what the kind of thing is that you will be supporting. And the difference in the songs there between the ones that I just did all the engineering myself, which are plenty creative, but just don't necessarily sound that slick. And the ones like for my band, New People, which we took into this studio and paid 50 some dollars an hour to actually make sound good. So that is what we're doing with the new album. And that really adds up. So I really could use your support with that. I hope all this talk of creativity has inspired you to be musical. So keep on musicin'. Until next time, this is Mark Lintzenmeyer signing off. 